I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, it's Tuesday, March 6th, 2018. Another episode, episode 35, the Wong Takes. We're at decade, or a, a score, a decade, and, and half a decade. 35 episodes, and still going strong. And on the rise, of course. Uh... Let's get uh, underway. So I've got a little bit uh, something different for the first topic today. It's not most of the stuff we do here is reacting to something that happened in the world of sports. This is more of one of the features that I like to do sometimes. Uh, it's kind of reacting to something, but uh, this something happened like six months ago. So eh, it's more just a feature. Uh, and what it's going to be is highlighting or putting a spotlight on one of the best basketball broadcasters we have uh, in America today. And while this seem, might seem like something dull or whatever, just, just, just listen. There's, there's going to be a, not a punchline, but a little surprise at the end, unless you've been following us. Uh, so this person that I want to talk about today, let's just look at this person's resume. This broadcaster played college basketball at Providence, left as the all-time leader in assists, and would be inducted into the Providence College Hall of Fame. This person has been a broadcaster for nearly three decades, which is since 1990. This person has been the television and radio voice of the WNBA's New York Liberty since 1997, so for two decades plus. Now, not just in the WNBA, this person has also worked in the NBA for decades, calling games on radio and television for the New York Knicks since 2000. This person has been an NBA sideline reporter for ESPN since 2003. And this person has been a sideline reporter for the NBA Finals since 2009. So that's almost now coming up on a decade of NBA Finals work, work at the highest level uh, of the NBA. This person also works in college basketball, was promoted to, or did, was promoted to ESPN's top men's college basketball team in 2003 alongside legends like Dick Vitale. And this person is intelligent, insightful, and witty throughout broadcast. There's never a dull moment. And so this, and then the, who is this person? Uh, this person, even though she made news by becoming the first woman to have a full regular season analyst role in the, in the NBA, her resume makes it seem only right that Doris Burke uh, has rose to such prominence uh, on our televisions and on ESPN. Uh, the reason I wanted to highlight this is because, of course, she's a woman and she doesn't uh, often get the respect she deserves just because of her gender. And that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. And it's kind of a celebration of what she's been able to accomplish, despite, of course, all of the obstacles she's had to face. Um, Beyond just the fact that this was a groundbreaking promotion of her getting the regular, full regular season analyst job, uh, her work has been praised for a very long time, uh, NBS, or by a lot of people too. Uh, ESPN NBA senior producer Tim Corrigan said, quote, simply put, Doris Burke is one of the best commentators in sports, and quote, Golden State Warriors head coach Steve Kerr says, quote, she's one of the best analysts we have in the NBA, and quote, and then ESPN Jeff Van Gundy compares her to LeBron James and says she's, quote, the best, most versatile analyst and commentator at ESPN, end quote. Um, and a lot of times, like, especially with all the controversy about, like, you know, affirmative action and all that stuff, 
It's like, do these people get their jobs, this job, just because she's a woman? No, she's one of the best we have. Uh, if you listen to any of her broadcasts, you'll know that she's a great broadcaster. Uh, and I think it's about time that we start to recognize how good these women are at their jobs, uh, even beyond just breaking barriers and everything. Um, and like I said, not that many people, uh, not that many women have been able to earn respect uh, as a female sportscaster calling men's games, which is unfortunate. But uh, like these, if if you just think about like female uh, reporters, like in in the NFL, female reporters in locker rooms have been told to like you know get out. This isn't for you. Or in in the NBA, MLB, similar situations, and female broadcasters especially um, by like viewers that uh, don't that are just kind of like macho like this is a man's game or whatever it's like you know there's no way for you to know what you're talking about and that's of course very ignorant and just disrespectful and all that but because of it even though we've started to recognize that like recently as a society it's hard to overcome all the barriers and biases that have been attached to being have been attached to being a, a female in sports but what Doris Burke has done that's so remarkable is that she's just shown because she's been so good for so long and her resume is so stacked like we said earlier it's just impossible to ignore her and she's shown that women can do these roles for long periods of time and be successful and break ground in this industry which of course is great and this can i i believe that this can set the stage for more women to assume these type of roles and and we're going to talk more about this and and this a little bit later but of course, uh, in her one of the biggest obstacles to women in sports is them being judged unfairly based on their looks. And Doris Burke faced similar obstacles to her, what what she does now. Uh, in the past, she was told to change her appearance by a producer in order to start calling better games. And the producer, of course, this is never a good thing to like you know tell a person is to change their appearance just to do better. Uh, the producer's like, yeah, no, this is the honest truth. I'm not going to give you a BS answer. And that's just the reality of broadcasting, right? I mean, I don't want to say it's not the producer's fault because the producer should not have said that. But she would have gotten a response from, at, probably at the time from like 90% of everyone else just because that's the way it was and that's the way it still is to some extent where there's, you know, I mean, the Me Too movement is starting to expose some of these in- inequalities um, but those still exist in that they're still judged superficially and not based on talent. And, you know, Berg, like, has acknowledged this hypocrisy. Like, she says, quote, there are a lot of 60-year-old men who have wrinkles, no hair, glasses, and nobody gives a damn, end quote, which is totally true. I mean, men aren't judged based on their looks. They're only judged because um, people want or if their analysis is good, and that's how it should be. I mean, part of it, I think, is that women generally break ground more as sideline reporters, so they're on camera more. But still, like, men are going to be on camera too, and also the reason that women are often put on screen more is just because the women that do make it in the industry, at least beforehand, were were, uh, hired for in part for their looks, and that's just the way it is, or the way it was. It's not how it should be, but that's the way it was. Um, and hopefully that's starting to break down and you can get more people like Burke, who's 52 years old and 
yet she can still rise to this position and she shows no signs of slowing down. And I think that could allow more women uh, that are not, you know, young uh, to break into the industry and really show their knowledge and their expertise like like a lot of the men in the industry do where they're not they're not like, you know, young and fresh, but they're knowledgeable. And that's really all that matters when you're broadcasting a game. Now, Burke's promotion uh, has kind of has been uh, not not a peak. Of course not. There can never be a peak in this fight but has been a significant climb in the trend for more roles for women in sports broadcasting. So Burke became now a full regular season analyst on ESPN. Uh, Jessica Mendoza broke ground in Major League Baseball last year by joining the, I think it was the Sunday Night Baseball team. But either way, she got a similar role of a regular season rotating analyst for ESPN. Uh, In college football, Beth Mowens became, I think, the first female play-by-play announcer for ESPN, did a phenomenal job. And both of these women, even though they were great, they did everything well, they put on a brave face, they faced, they did face a lot of criticism, and some of it was just like, oh, I think their voice is annoying, or I don't like just like having a woman, woman in the booth. And that's just, that, that should not be how they're judged, because that's inherently sexist. And they're going to continue to hear it, but they've been phenomenal with it. They've been able to put up with it. I think generally the praise uh, and of and recognition of progress has overcome these taunts. Um, but we're, I think we're going to see more women as uh, more women um, just feel that they can actually do this now, now that these women have set an example uh, for what is possible. Uh, even though, like, yeah, I think people, I think people are going to come around. Even the people who don't like female broadcasters now, I think people are going to come around because all female analysts that want to break into the industry have the deck stacked against them. Like, there's no qualm, there's no like question about that. The industry is heavily biased toward men and also former players, which mostly includes men. But as long as they keep doing phenomenal work and doing uh, just great jobs and people will recognize that and people are going to realize that yeah it's okay so that's my story my little surprise story for the week uh now let's talk about a event that happened the last last week or so and that would be the nfl scouting combine where you get all these prospects from the best of college football and they come and perform as well as they can for NFL scouts in hope to in hope in the hopes of getting drafted high. Uh, the scouting combine wrapped up on Monday after seven days of drills and workouts. And I just want to highlight a couple interesting stories from the week in Indianapolis. Uh, the first that I want to say, uh, just a big, like nice job, uh, Saquon Barkley, who was the running back coming out of Penn State. And he was actually, I believe, almost a Heisman finalist this year. Uh, he was running really well at the start of the season. And he was actually a Heisman favorite at that time, too. Uh, unfortunately, he fell off toward the end of the year, or fell off toward the end of the year and didn't. And I think was probably still a top five Heisman candidate, but didn't get to go to the ceremony. Uh, at Penn State, he was super explosive. Like his speed, once he gets in the clear, be able to hit the holes, is just remarkable. And at the Combine, he showed out uh, just a couple of numbers here. He had a 4.40 40-yard dash, 
which was the 10th best time uh, overall and also the second best time for running backs behind NC State's Naheem Hines. Um, 4-4-0, any, anything, well, it, it depends on your position, of course, but for really any player, uh, 4-4 or 4-3, and he almost hit 4-3, uh, is just a remarkable time. And even though combine success is not indicative of feature success, this just proves what we saw on the field. Uh, he also had a 41-inch vertical, which doesn't, you can't really tell what that means. So that was the third best overall by any player, including wide receivers, including tight ends, uh, including, I don't know, people who can jump. And he was the top uh, leaper for running backs. So that's, once again, top of his class. Also, the probably the most impressive number from the weekend, uh, 29 225-pound bench press reps, which was the eighth best overall. And this is, keep in mind, from a running back who are known normally for their speed, not for their power. And he was tied for first for number of reps for running backs. I think these everyone knew that Saquon Barkley was really good before the combine. But of course, like the, these numbers just allow people to quantize what they've seen beyond just like number of yards run for or number of touches or number of touchdowns. Uh, these, these numbers help really put these athletes in a vacuum and just compare them directly. And these type of performances, especially compared to his peers, are just going to set him apart from the rest of the running back class. Just the combination of power and speed and just pure athletic ability is something that we don't get too often uh, in this league. So he's going to be probably a great running back in the NFL. And thanks to his combine performance, NFL teams are seeing the same thing. He's now probably a top five pick in the draft for sure. Uh, Maybe even probably top three. And he might even go number one to the Browns. Uh, he was rumored the like he's he's sh- firmly in the mix for that number one pick. And the Browns could use a running back. I mean they have they have Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson, but those aren't like game breakers. Uh, and they've tried to draft running backs in the past. Trent Richardson comes to mind, but they haven't been successful with it so far. Uh, I know we say this like with every Browns draft pick, but I mean he could be the piece they need to start winning. I mean last year, even though they went 0-16. They, they, I think they lost by three or fewer points in like six games. So it's not like they were getting blown out every single game. And if you have a guy like Barkley that uh, allows whatever quarterback you have to be able to loft the ball more, um, that's going to be great for your offense and for your team, for keeping the team on the field and break, running down, breaking down the defense. It's good to talk about football again. Um, but yeah, Saquon Barkley uh, did a phenomenal job at the Combine. And now the other story that we have, just two stories from the NFL Combine, uh, Shaquem Griffin, who uh, was probably the biggest headline of the weekend, not just on the field, but off the field. Griffin's a crazy, amazing story. Uh, his left hand was amputated at age four, as in like, like fully cut off, because of a birth condition that prevented his fingers from developing. And yet, despite this disability... He still played phenomenally at UCF, totaling 18 and a half sacks in his last two years on campus. So as a junior and a senior, he averaged over nine sacks per year or about one sack every like one and a half games. And he, well, and also his brothers in the NFL too, uh, rookie last year on the Seahawks. Uh, he also did really well at the NFL scouting combine. Uh like Saquon Barkley, he put up a great performance on the bench press. He had 20 reps, wearing a prosthetic device on his left arm. 
and his personal best had been 11. So I don't know if it was adrenaline or heart, which teams will love either of them, but just shattering your personal best is a great thing to do at the NFL Combine. Uh, also, his 40 time, even if he you didn't know he was uh, had a quote-unquote disability, 4-3-8. I said 4-3 is a great time for anyone, and that was and he had the 8th best overall time at the Combine. 4-3-8, first for linebackers, uh, which is the position he plays. Uh, once again, just... For a linebacker to have that speed, it's going to be really helpful uh, in the pass rush uh, on defense. Just give your defense some versatility. Uh, and also just defend the middle of the field or if playing on the outside, keep up with wide receivers. Uh, and that speed is going to be necessary in the NFL. Um, and he's also just through this whole time just destroying stereotypes. I mean, his the disability of having one hand really isn't one for him. I mean... He's been playing with this with this amputated hand his entire life, so that means he knows how to use it to his advantage. I mean, we saw uh, or during games, it never really looked like it was hindering him. He could still sack with the best of them. He can use his uh, left arm for lever or left arm uh, for leverage, and um, he can still get around guys. I mean, his swim moves with his amputated arm make it a different look for offensive linemen. Uh, I guess that could be an advantage as well. Uh, he also, during the combine, showed he can catch the ball uh, with relative ease, and that would be seemingly the only obvious glaring physical issue uh, from his arm. Uh, and like I said, his brother is in the NFL. He's been doing well, and I wouldn't be surprised. They're from the same genes. I think they're twins. So they have the same athletic ability, and Shaquille Griffin, who's on the Seahawks right now, is becoming one of the... Uh, up-and-coming corners in the NFL, having to play uh, a lot of minutes with them in Richard Sherman's absence and things like that. Uh, so he knows what's up. And I think for Shaquem Griffin, the combine was kind of to show people that he was legitimate. Uh, he was kind of a feel-good story throughout the year as UCF went undefeated, but I think he had two chances to really show the, the country what he can do and show NFL scouts what he can do, and that was the Peach Bowl, where he had a huge impact having 12 tackles, uh, and I think it was one and a half sacks, uh, against a tough uh, Auburn team. And then here at the Combine, he actually almost didn't get invited to the Combine, and yet, now that he did, he put up a very solid bench press, uh, an extremely fast 40 time. His other time was 4.58, which is like kind of more than norm, but still, the 4.38 is remarkable, even if you can only do it once. Uh, and I think he showed teams that he, he can play. Uh, the kid can play, and I think Richard Sherman tweeted er, like yesterday or something that's like, if he doesn't get drafted in the first two days, there's something wrong. Uh, and yeah, if you just look at his pure talent in a vacuum, his statistics at UCF, the success of his team at UCF, his combine performance, his Peach Bowl performance, the combination of that means a team could use a guy like him, uh, not only for his athletic talent, but I mean, the, can you imagine the positive press uh, you would get, I know it's kind of a, uh, pessim, not pessimistic, but just like, like, like a hard look at things, but could you imagine like all of the people, the feel good stories, the people would be able to help the people he would inspire as well. I think it's a more, uh, positive look at things, people he would inspire in his new city. Uh, there's no reason he shouldn't get drafted and that's going to be a fun story to track. 
uh, going into the NFL draft, which is just a month and a half away. All right, shout-outs for this week. Um, cliche, tickets punched. Uh, in college basketball, which is ramping or coming up to its peak right now, each team that wins, if you didn't know, each team that wins their conference, so there are 32 conferences in NCAA D1, they get an automatic bid into the NCAA tournament. And so most major conferences, like there are teams, you don't have to win your conference tournament to get in because the rest of your conference is good enough that you can get in as an at-large, one of the 36 at-large bids. Um, and most of those major conferences have their tournaments going on right now. But smaller conferences, where the only team that advances to the tournament is the one that wins the conference championship, uh, these games are, some of them have wrapped up, and these games are a chance to really show your team uh, on a national scale. So, let's give some shout-outs to those smaller teams. Uh, first of all, the first team to clinch a berth was Murray State who won the Ohio Valley Conference. They beat Belmont 68-51. to And the Racers, the Murray State Racers, have advanced to the NCAA tournament 16 times. So they are experienced-ish. And actually, their senior, Jonathan Stark, was the OVC's Player of the Year. So that's going to be a fun team to watch, I think. Next is Loyola Chicago, who won the Mountain Valley Conference by beating Illinois State 65-49. to And these are this is one of the first teams that we're going to talk about that has had a, not been in the tournament a lot. This is the first time in the NCAA tournament in 33 years. Next is Radford from the Big South, who beat Liberty 55-52 to in the most exciting fashion, uh, which was a buzzer beater. And you could really see the emotions uh, that came out when they hit the shot. You've probably seen it. Uh, just kids that know that this is a freshman that made the shot too. No, this is what gets us into the tournament. Uh, next is Lipscomb from the Atlantic Sun, who beat Florida Gulf Coast University 108 to 96 in a very high-scoring game, and that means uh, everyone's favorite Florida Gulf Coast Dunk City won't be in the tournament this year. But uh, silver lining, it is Lipscomb's first time ever in the tournament, so that's another good story uh, that comes out of these games. Uh, next is Iona from the MAC or the Metro Athletic, Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, something like that. The MAC. Uh, they beat Fairfield 83 to 71 and they will make the tournament for the third straight year. They made it in 2016 and 2017, but this time they're going to look to get out of the first round because their last two tournaments, they lost to Ohio State and Oregon uh, in the first round. The round of 64, and next is UNC Greensboro from the Southern Conference. They beat Eastern Tennessee State yesterday, 62-47, to and they're going dancing for the first time since 2001, so another team that had a long tournament drought, uh, and they're coming back. And finally, uh, saved them for last because they're not a minor conference team, uh, the Big Ten wrapped up their tournament a few days ago. They were an early finisher and the team that won that tournament was Michigan State, who I or sorry, Michigan, who I believe was the five seed in the Big Ten tournament. They beat Purdue 75-66 to in the title game and also had to beat Michigan State, who was the number one seed in the, turn in the Big Ten tournament and the number one team in the country for a long time uh, to get there. And despite an uneven season uh, that Michigan had, they, they didn't do well at the start of the year, but they caught fire late and will ride a nine-game winning streak into the tournament. And this is a team that uh, hasn't, 
quite a bit of experience in contrast to the Fab Five team from the 90s that was built on youth and made a tournament run and captured the hearts of America. This team is more experienced. Uh, one of their, I think their leading scorer, Mo Wagner, who is a player, uh, I think he was, born out, he was born outside of the U.S., but he also, even though he had struggled early in the Big Ten tournament, really came to life in the second half of the Michigan State game and the entire Purdue game. And I think this team, this is probably, depending on when brackets come out and looking at the brackets, but this has the potential to be like my Dark Horse Final Four team. Of course, we're going to do a tournament preview next week, I think. Selection Sunday, I want to say, is this weekend. So we'll do a uh, tournament preview next week. Maybe it'll be a two-week thing. Um, but they're they're going to be a dangerous team. I think just they're, of course, no team you can really say for sure because of the nature of the tournament, but this team has experience. They have experienced coaching, John Beeline, um, and they had to win a lot of tight games. They have practice in this situation, uh, recent practice coming into this one. Uh, again, coming into the tournament. So those are your shout-outs for the week. And before we wrap up the show, let's turn to the quick take. We got the NFLPA is defending the players' right to demonstrate and protest next season. Yeah, so uh, the NFL owners have kind of backtracked on their previous indifferent, not indifference, but like allowing kneeling to happen. Uh, Owners like Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, and um, right now, that's it. But the Texans were accused of this, although they have denied the saying that they wouldn't let players kneel. But yeah, whenever you have some some protests like this and the movement it's caused, you're going to have inevitable backlash from a fully white ownership group and that probably share similar views if you know what I mean uh and the NFLPA coming out with this statement saying like uh players players can protest and players have the right to protest and you're not gonna we're not gonna let owners abuse their power and uh force and not or and force players to stand for the anthem um that's something that the NFLPA kind of has to take a stand on. They don't really uh, have a choice. Of course, you want to defend the rights of your players that you represent. Uh, it keeps you fresh in their minds. And I think the players, I think players will continue to kneel this, this season. Once again, like, every time the issue comes up, it's like the players, there's not really much highlight on how, on players kneeling until someone talks about it. And then once someone talks about it, like, or, I mean, not in the sense of social justice sense, but, like, in they shouldn't do it sense, then it raises awareness to them again, and they continue to kneel, and it perpetuates the kneeling. So this this report, these reports of teams wanting to prevent, prevent players from kneeling is going to make players kneel even more. I don't know, I'm, I'll be curious to see if players on teams that are banned, quote-unquote banned, to kneel will do so. Uh, we didn't see that last year with ownership groups like the craft ownership group in new england that didn't want players to kneel no one kneeled on new england but i'm curious if teams in players in miami will want to or if the backlash from this supposed ban on kneeling is gonna make the miami dolphins owner uh take back his statements um but yeah this is gonna be a continuing story as it should be really um this story is never going to go away or fade out of the national conscience 
just because of the number of people that watch the NFL, the the amount of a, uh, the platform that NFL players have is going to continue to bring awareness to the situation uh, until enough change happens that NFL players deem or and the the general public deems we've made enough toward racial equality, which uh, I don't see happening anytime soon. So, yeah, uh, good on the NFLPA, uh, good on the players who continue to fight for uh, the right to just be equal. Thank you so much for listening to The Long Takes. Uh, Of course, always send fan questions to all of the places, thewongtakes at gmail.com. If you want to do it directly, go to bit.ly slash thewongtakes, which will take you to our website. And from there, you can also type in a question. Uh, check out the Patreon feed, patreon.com slash thelongtakes. You know how to get there. You can get shouted out on the podcast. You could get a shout out in the description, which I'm sure you read uh, before you listen to the episode to see what was going on. You can get a shout out there. And thank you so much for listening. And I will, of course, see you next week.